Do you regard the mystery, the form of mystery, uh, in a film as a kind of escape for yourself in any way? An escape possibly from your own fears? Well, it might have started that way. I suppose it must have all started when I was in my mother's arms at the age of six months. And she said to me, Boo! Drama is life with a dull bit cut out. This is Music for Films, the underground film podcast. And for the next hour and a half, you're listening to Rated H for Hitchcock. And I'm joined in this first episode of an exploration of the films of Alfred Hitchcock by Dr. Shruti Narayanswamy. Hello, hello. And we'll be benefiting from Shruti's scholarship in this exploration of Alfred Hitchcock's films. Suffice it to say that in a conversation about auteurism, she's a gal who can take care of herself. I'm Tim Concannon, and I take care of the links and the facts that kind of hold the programme together, which ain't easy because when we got together, it was murder. So we're now playing the heart to heart theme music as a sound bed, uh, partly because it is another H word, it starts with H. You see what I'm doing with this? It's kind of themed. And it's Halloween. And it's Halloween scene too, that's true. We're going to end up talking about the H word a lot. We're going to end up talking about the M word, mystery, murder, melodrama, which you could hear uh, Robert Robinson talking to Alfred Hitchcock about at the start of this podcast from a 1960 interview that Alfred Hitchcock did. It's very interesting. And uh, we're this close to... Brexit Day now that it's interesting to think back to the time when um, people weren't worried about people coming over here from Poland or France and taking their jobs. Uh, it was all people called Robert. People forget that before the European Economic Community Britain had a massive surplus of people called Robert. We had a huge Veronica Lake Would you say it was an infestation of robots? Yeah. It shows how, um, rather than being worried about people having their job replaced by robots, they were just worried about their job being replaced by robots. <laughs> also, what a uh, wonderful time when you could elect to have horror in your life by going to the cinema. As opposed to now, as we get closer to Brexit Day, when horror is just abundant, abundant through reality, lives. like dust. Yeah. Well, I wanted to lead in with uh, that little clip, both because it's got Hitchcock doing that lovely soundbite, and this is the thing about Alfred Hitchcock is there's lots of very quotable bits. Yes. That you can then talk about, and I think that's one of the reasons why, really, of all the film directors, he's the one where there are the most anecdotes and people just like yammering on about Alfred Hitchcock because he's, he's uh, such an endlessly fascinating man. We'll obviously talk about the H-word in terms of Alfred Hitchcock and his life and sort of look at this from a biographical standpoint. I suppose while we're talking about the H-word, we can't ignore 
the other important H in Alfred Hitchcock's films, which is, of course, the genius of Bernard Herrmann. Yes, Who's beautiful music for Marnie is our theme music, and you can hear some of it as a soundbed. What can one say about Bernard Herrmann as a composer? What about that Mozart? Yeah, Mozart's good, yeah. Yeah, I like that, Prince. There's a hot take for you. Well, something I would say is that Bernard Herrmann got better towards the end of his life and his career, so shall we listen to a little bit of Taxi Driver? a bit of Bernard Herrmann's score from Taxi Driver and it's, it's just quite lovely and uh, one of the great pleasures of talking about Alfred Hitchcock's films in order is we're going to get to listen to so much incredible music Bernard Herrmann music for me I can't confess that I've um, sought out every Hitchcock film because I've ended up being a film scholar I would like this opportunity to just talk about the films themselves and not just as Hitchcockian films, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I think there's a sense in which Hitchcock's work is now so revered. And I think, uh, mindful of Peter Bogdanovich's documentary about Buster Keaton, for example, there's a way in which as cinema is becoming uh, more endangered, I mean, obviously, we're recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic uh, and things are not looking good for the theatrical cinema exhibition industry, certainly in America and in this country. Uh, most of the main cinemas in Britain are, we hope, temporarily close until next year. Many cities in America, uh, Los Angeles being the kind of obvious one where Hollywood is, uh, movie theatres aren't open. As the experience of going to the cinema becomes a more kind of precious and rare experience. I think there's a tendency for classic cinema and classic films and celebrated directors to be treated with a kind of greater degree of holiness. Yes. And it can spoil art to treat art as great art. I mean, I always, these things for me at least exist in a sort of quantum state of indeterminacy that. Yes, Mozart is a great composer. It's, yeah, that's true. But at the same time as that, if you've constantly got people telling you how important a piece of art is and how much you should appreciate it, I think in reality it sort of detracts from it, actually. It just becomes more distant instead of making you feel... Um, it also makes it harder for people to discuss these films or, you know, these pieces of art or music or whatever it is because people start becoming afraid that their opinions are wrong yes or that their opinions are not refined enough especially yes. when they're talking about someone like Hitchcock so I think if we just sort of talk about them as films as films that we've enjoyed and that we just like to discuss 
uh, because you know we have these conversations quite often so it would be nice to have those conversations about Hitchcock's career. Yeah what I really wanted to do with these podcasts we've already done a couple in this format where because we can't get guests in and we can't use an outside studio so we're just recording our conversations at home let's be blunt uh, is we've looked at some movies back to back where perhaps they're films that you can watch online uh, instantly I mean they're all there on YouTube or you can find them on maybe on the BFI player or you, you can certainly find them online one way or another without much difficulty and this is the case with most cinema uh, you can see most films that you can think of are now available in some format but what we're doing nonetheless is, you know, we're seeing what's binge-worthy on Netflix or on Amazon Prime. And so I wanted to kind of do something that followed on from these other shows we've done. We did one about the wild world of Batwomen, looking at different Batwoman films. We did uh, one where we compared the Andromeda Strain, which obviously is a very uh, timely and topical film to be looking at at the moment and we compared that with the Mexican adaptation of Daniel Defoe's Diary of a Plague Year but what I wanted to do was to try and look at one director to look at all the films of one director in sequence and there are quite a few podcasts that do look at Alfred Hitchcock a film at a time but as you were saying I kind of want to look at them as films not so much as sort of biographical stepping stones in the development of Hitchcock's directing or or Hitchcock's work as an artist. This brings us on to another very interesting H word, which is horror. Because of course Alfred Hitchcock, at least to me, is interesting for all sorts of reasons. He's the only director I can think of whose career spans the silent period, the great classic period of Hollywood, and what we think of really is kind of modern modern horror cinema. But also his techniques, I mean he cut his work covers everything from very avant-garde filmmaking techniques that bear comparison with Boone Well and with uh, surrealist and very early silent art film directors through to, in his later work, you know, he's making stuff that's like John Carpenter. And of course the other thing that we're doing is that we are, each episode we talk about uh, one Hitchcock film, but we're also looking at at another film from the same period. Yeah, which is what what I suppose makes this podcast different from the six other Alfred Hitchcock podcasts. Because I would say that um, for, again, very obvious reasons, because Hitchcock was such a pioneering and influential director, uh, conversations about Hitchcock films always talk about the influence that Hitchcock had on other films or films of that period but it would be by looking at another film from that same period what influenced Hitchcock about that particular period or um, was there something that other films of that period were doing that we can uh, you know can we spot those influences in Hitchcock's work a lot of the problem for the film industry in the 21st century compared with when Alfred Hitchcock's The Pleasure Garden was released, which was in 1927, is these movies take, you know, four, five, seven years to get made, and they're just not very culturally responsive in the way that a horror movie, or actually these two movies that we're talking about today, in 1928, well, 1923 in the case of the film we're contrasting it with, which is The Smile of Madame Boudet, by the uh, noted feminist 
and avant-garde filmmaker Germaine Gillac. Over that five-year period, 23 to 28, they're quite responsive to you know, contemporary issues in, in Europe at that time. I would like to add just one more point about cinema going because I think horror is one of the few genres which encourage cinema going in groups because there are very few people um, uh, I'll confess I like watching horror movies by myself on my phone mm. I, I, you know, I find, it, find it oddly relaxing but most people uh, will go and watch a scary film in the cinema because not many people want to watch them by themselves so it's a genre that encourages cinema going in groups uh, because of just the nature of horror films I mean Halloween people like going trick-or-treating in groups these activities being scared is only fun when you're doing it with other people then it becomes a bit of a laugh yeah there's, there's a case for saying that horror as a genre not just horror cinema but horror entertainment generally does link very strongly to the kind of old European masking traditions because it's about this period of the year we're recording this in October in 2020 when the nights are getting longer it's getting darker you people feel anxious people feel anxious about going out when it's dark they feel anxious about their safety generally obviously in the middle of a global pandemic this is amplified and in a way that you feel safe going to a movie theater to watch a horror film that your kids can go around the neighborhood wearing costumes asking people for sweets makes people feel safe and this year in Scotland there isn't going to be any trick-or-treating and uh, it's not that common in Scotland but certainly I mean nothing in the world is as common as trick-or-treating is in America so American listeners have to take on board you guys yes that's your thing I mean I would have to say it's a bit more common in St Andrews again because we do have lots of um American families yeah. who live in the town so I have seen uh, trick or treat but you're right that in terms of just like a, a, a family event of a genre of entertainment in itself um, doing things like putting on a costume or going to a film I think it also makes you feel like you are in control of the experience of getting scared that it's an elective process that you want to get a little bit scared, but you're still in the safety of a cinema, you're still in the safety of your friends. Uh, so it, it helps us exert control in a world where, especially now, we're feeling like a lot of those feelings of anxiety, of dread, are simply outside our control. That's a really, really good point. And it's also very interesting to think about it in terms of this period between two world wars, the Jalak film we're talking about is from 1923. Yes. Arguably Hitchcock's first film from 1927, The Pleasure Garden. This is a period of great political upheaval, great yes. economic uncertainty. Uh, it's a world recovering from the Great War, hoping that the League of Nations is going to be able to broker um, international agreements between countries so that the world won't go to war again. But also a period of huge uncontrolled financial speculation that of yes. course led to the Wall Street crash and great political change as well around the world I mean that of course the main thing in America at this time is prohibition yes uh, and the subject of the first of these films that we'll talk about the pleasure garden is uh, hedonism 
is the uh, louche bohemian world of showgirls and the theatre and nightclubs that certainly connects with what we're talking about that the issues people had in the 20s in terms of how horror was a kind of lightning conductor for people's anxiety about politics and public space and also just you know what if you get stuck in a marriage that you're not happy in because of course no divorce laws certainly not of the kind we have now very interesting yeah especially you know things like divorce abortion um in an era where you could not get those things legally but there was uh, in society there was a lot of social mixing happening between the genders precisely places like cinemas and other entertainments where men and women were free to uh, mingle uh, love uh, have a drink backstage at music halls there you are well so there's a lot for us to talk about when we look at these two films Uh, but I just want to We'll talk about not just the M word for mystery and murder and the H word for Hitchcock and horror a lot in the coming weeks. And we're going to do every single Hitchcock film by the end of this process. It's probably going to take us a couple of years because it's quite a few of them. Um, But the thing that will keep coming up, and I want to kind of put this to bed now, is the A word. What do I mean by the A word? I mean auteur. Oh, boy. Dans le sens que, il y a vraiment, il y a, vous êtes vraiment auteur. Oui, la politique des auteurs, c'était l'idée que les films n'étaient pas des... Que bien sûr, les films se font en équipe, mais que, euh, où quelqu'un a quelque chose à dire, où quelqu'un a des idées sur la vie, et sur le cinéma et sur le monde. Et alors tout ce qu'il fait est intéressant, même si un tel film est un peu moins bien que celui d'avant. Ou bien c'est quelqu'un qui fait son travail de façon anonyme et ce n'est pas intéressant. C'était ça la politique des auteurs. C'était né d'une phrase de Giraudoux qui disait « Il n'y a pas de pièce de théâtre, il n'y a que des auteurs ». Giraudoux voulait dire « Il y a le bloc Claudel, le bloc Giraudoux, le bloc Molière, le reste des pièces, une, euh, une pièce réussie par hasard n'a pas d'intérêt ». C'était ça l'idée. So that was the renowned French film director and critic François Truffaut explaining auteur theory, uh, which for those listening who are not uh, conversant in French he's essentially saying that the idea came from uh, Giraudot with his famous statement that there are no plays, any authors and that there's something about the cinema of Jean Cocteau or Bresson which makes those films intrinsically interesting because those directors are intrinsically interesting they have something to say about cinema or the world or life which make them like the great authors, like the great philosophers. And so what they were interested in in their magazine, Cahiers de Cinema, and this has ended up casting a long shadow on film criticism and also on film scholarship, which is the idea that there are certain great film directors whose work is of intrinsic worth because it's by them. And certainly François Truffaut and Cahiers de Cinema were instrumental in establishing Alfred Hitchcock as one of the, the preeminent auteur film directors, if not the main one. Yes. Which, I mean, there's a lot to say about this, and I don't want to necessarily cover the whole issue on this occasion, because I think we'll just keep coming back to it. But my view about it, and feel free to disagree with me, is although the concept of the auteur is problematic, 
for various reasons we can go into. He's not wrong. No, he's I mean not Hitchcock wrong. is. It's a banal point, which we've already discussed, but Hitchcock is one of the great film directors. But what I'm hoping we can get at with these podcasts is that his greatness didn't kind of spring ex nihilo yes. out of a void because there was something about um, the son of a greengrocer from Leytonstone that meant that he would just, you know, he, he went to Catholic church as a little boy one day and saw the sacraments and the candles and was somehow touched by the, the Holy Spirit of the cinema and everything he touched from that point on was sort of blessed with the holiness of Alfred Hitchcock's unique worldview. Actually, he was as inspired by, as influenced by everything going on in the world and in cinema as anyone else making films at any point in his career. And what makes him a great filmmaker actually is how, as we're saying about horror films, how responsive he is to to what's going on. I am not a fan of auto theory, uh, but I certainly understand why it came came into being, because we're talking about you know film and media studies. But let's let's specifically talk about film studies, film and the idea that films are important and they tell us something about our world, about you know everything there is about our modern condition. Uh, we now recognise that films are and are important cultural um, artifacts, but there was a time in the early years, in the early decades of cinema from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, was there, there were a lot of um, philosophers and thinkers and well, important men, because it ended up mostly being men, who wanted to give cinema that legitimacy. That's why when you, uh, you know, if you take a, end up taking a film theory course uh, at university, you um, there's a lot of talk about people who are not necessarily recognised as film theorists, such as Walter Benjamin, for example. But there's a reason why they felt the need to make this statement because they wanted people to recognise that cinema was a legitimate art form, like any other form of art. And we recognise that now, but that was not always the case. So I understand the impulse. The problem with auto uh, theory is at least in the first few decades of you know when scholarship about film was really starting up there was a disproportionate focus on these authors and their films and like Truffaut says in that clip the idea is predicated about the, uh, on the fact that there are some people whose works are important uh, as compared to other people who maybe work anonymously or other people who are not as well known well, not as well-known and not as important according to whom. Yeah. There might be filmmakers who we don't regard as being important today. That might be culturally important 50 years ago in terms of people who work anonymously. Um, I think the disproportionate focus on auteurs means that we don't look at the invisible, below-the-line labour of a lot of people who work on these films, a lot of emotional labour that goes into making a film, it also ends up obscuring some really terrible behaviour yes. um, by these auteurs. <laughs> when and, we're talking you know, about terrible behaviour exactly. of auteurs and yeah. Alfred Hitchcock, boy, are yeah. we, is that going to take yeah. up a heck of a lot of our time? Yeah. Because exactly. He and, had issues yeah. with women, should we oh, say. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. So we end up a sort of uh, disproportionate focus on auteur theory means that 
we sort of end up obscuring all of these really fascinating and important things that goes into not just making a film, but creating that ecology of, around films, such as audiences, reception has become really important. Um, also, auto theory means that you're focusing a lot on what are the techniques that these people use in the films. Of course, that's very important. But what about films that don't exist? You know, films such as uh, non-theatrical films, a lot of training propaganda films, educational films, films training yeah. films. A lot of these films especially are very much related to understanding colonial legacies because mm. Britain, as a colonial unit, produced a lot of films for its colonies and those films were not considered sort of... Not, they were not commercial theatrical films. So... I, I'm very happy to say that if we look at sort of modern, the state of modern scholarship on films, we still teach auto theory because it's important. Um, it's important to know about them. But there's also uh, very much a challenge presented against auto theory. And I would say that the way that we think about films now, I feel like we've shifted from, not that we don't talk about you know, directors now, but we're also thinking about audiences, we're thinking about reception, we're thinking more about um, archival materials, films that are lost. Uh, we're looking at, again, you know, below the line, invisible layer, uh, labor. And that means that we've been able to now talk about important things such as Me Too, mm. which previously a lot of these things would just be sort of, oh, you know, that's, that's that famous director for you. You know, he's very important, but, you know, he's got a bit of a temper or, you know, he shouts at people. They, we are not giving uh, such behavior a pass anymore. And um, I think that tells us about, you know, what the state of auto theory is in the world today. And as we shall we'll go on to talk about in uh, episodes ahead, you, you can't talk about Alfred Hitchcock without addressing his highly problematic relationship, particularly with his female stars. That has to be addressed head on. So strictly speaking, Hitchcock regarded The Lodger, which we'll look at next time, as his first film, because it was the first film where he caught the shots uh, as a director, but also in terms of who was cast. and uh, It wasn't a, a job that he was brought into to fill in for someone else. Yes. He'd made um, quite a few films before The Lodger where he'd been second unit director, or he'd been, been one of a couple of directors. But I wanted on this first occasion to talk about the Pleasure Garden, both because it has been restored and there's a very nice print of it you can watch on the BFI player. That's a bit pricey. I mean, to be quite honest, do you think many of our listeners are going to stump up whatever it is, four quid, I think, Oof. to watch it on the BFI player? I mean, is, is this something we should talk about? Do you know any film scholars? I don't know any people who write about film who actually pay for the BFI player. And considering that's meant to be how the BFI is going to fund itself in the future. And I, I don't know what to think about it, because on the one hand, all right, Alfred Hitchcock's been dead for a while, and I don't think the Alfred Hitchcock estate makes very much from Hitchcock movies now. Probably not. But people restoring films deserve salaries. Should we as viewers be paying three or four quid to see a film from 1928, which has been dust-busted and digitally restored? Or should we just watch it watch a kind of ropey copy on YouTube for free I don't know I mean I I want to say pay and watch it on the BFI player and reality is we've watched it on YouTube and I think most people who listen to this will watch it on YouTube as well 
And all I'm really acknowledging by saying that is I'm uncomfortable about that. How do you feel, Shruti? I think that when I look at the BFI player, I often don't think that it's uh, even aimed at the general public. I think they assume that people paying for it are either institutions, as in universities, um, who want to take university subscriptions, or uh, it will be just die-hard aficionados. My problem is that the whole point of having online streaming services was that you didn't need to pay for a hundred channels on your telly when you just watch maybe that one program on a particular channel. That was the whole point of streaming, that you know you buy one subscription to Netflix or you buy an Amazon Prime subscription uh, and you don't have to pay over and over again for different things and now it's just turning out to be the same thing mm. that you know if you want to watch this one particular show you have to get a Disney Plus subscription you get an Amazon subscription but you have to get an add-on I don't know what the answer is to this and it's going to come up several times because the early Hitchcocks um, many of them have been restored and if you want to watch it on a beautiful restored print then you have that option. You yes. you may have to pay for it. You may have to get it on Blu-ray or, or watch it on the BFI player. I think there's a case for paying for it. I think there's a case for saying that these films uh, worked in the 1920s and 1930s. They are as good now as they were then and they deserve to be seen in the best possible uh, conditions, the best possible print. I mean, you know, when cinemas reopen and these things are on at film festivals, you should see these films with an audience, because that's how they were designed to be shown originally. The first film we're going to talk about is Alfred Hitchcock's The Pleasure Garden. It was made in 1925. It was shown to the press in 1926, but it wasn't actually released until 1927 in January, which was the month before Hitchcock's first big hit, The Lodger, was released. So, in a way, it's kind of got sort of lost in the attention which is quite rightly directed towards The Lodger which is Hitchcock's first really important film of course the other thing we should mention is that a gift to podcast makers and future Hitchcock biographers alike is that uh, Francois Truffaut sat down with Hitchcock and recorded a celebrated series of interviews over several days where he discussed all of Hitchcock's influences, every one of Hitchcock's films up till that point, which is an amazing record and also means that we can dip into these interviews and hear Hitchcock explain what was going on with each film himself. I mean, Hitchcock was is particularly good at talking about his work. In recent times, I can't think of other directors in the last, you know, 10 years or so that we have, you know, such a rich body of sort of interviews and other uh, primary materials where they themselves talk about their films. Hitchcock is just really good at the way that he expresses his sort of motivations for making the films that the way they were. It's very it's much great. a hallmark of those of those directors of the golden age of Hollywood. Yes. John Ford, Wells. They're great raconteurs about yes. their own work and that means that we've got this sort of body of quotes that we can go back to. Though not about the pleasure garden. No. No, he doesn't no. actually really have very much to say about it at all. I think he liked his two stars, Virginia Valvey, who 
retired after uh, making a few films after The Pleasure Garden. She remarried in 1931 and moved to Palm Springs. Oh, fair enough. And the other star of The Pleasure Garden is uh, Carmelita Garaguti, who became an accomplished painter. Oh, wow. In the French Impressionist style. So she went on to have her own career as an artist after this. I Uh, have a question. Is there a Pleasure Garden in The Pleasure Garden? I think The Pleasure Garden is the theatre. Ah, okay. Not ten, it. Oh, yeah. Okay, got it. Okay, yes. Okay. Because it was quite common at this time for uh, variety halls, vaudeville halls, to be called things like the Palace of Variety. Right. So I think the Pleasure Garden is the name of the theatre that we see at the start. Got it. But the other thing that's very interesting about the Pleasure Garden, not a film that Hitchcock in any way dismissed, I think. He just didn't really regard it as... His film. His first film. Yes. He's, he talked about his first film as being the film we'll talk about next time which is The Lodger yes uh, oh and Lodger is very much Hitchcock's film and a, f- a film about which I don't think there's any dispute that it's no. a classic and yes. extraordinary piece of work yes. and we're going to compare that one with the talkie remake which very few people watch or talk about mainly because it's not much good oh but uh, when we come to talk about that next time, it's a talky remake of The Lodger, which is a film. Uh, it's basically updating Jack the Ripper, isn't it, from the 1880s yes. to the yes. 1930s. But both films have Ivan Novello. Yes. In. And That's Ivan right. Novello is a very interesting figure in British culture and British popular culture of the 20s and 30s, about whom much can be said and will be said next time. Another thing that's interesting about this film, The Pleasure Garden, is it was made on location in Europe. So this is a time when Alfred Hitchcock was making a number of films uh, in German studios. So he was mainly based at Gainsborough Studios in East London, uh, but there were co-productions going on with films in Germany and German productions were going on location across Europe. So the Pleasure Garden has many uh, European locations where Hitchcock went to go That's and right. film. But it's interesting in looking at this film to think about the fact that Hitchcock very much regarded himself as part of the cinema of his time and that was a world cinema. It wasn't a cinema where there was an American film industry, yes. a British film industry. Yes. It was still quite a fresh industry and art form and all the people making films even at the level where Hitchcock began at uh, there was a big enough business but also not that many films coming out so uh, most people had seen most other people's yes work without going too much in depth because we did do touch upon film theory a little bit uh, it's interesting that I think it was 1924 that the who we now regard as one of the first film theorists, Bella Balash, came out with this famous work um, which talked about how cinema could now become the universal language. So Balash talks about how because before cinema, uh, humanity was reliant uh, excessively on literature 
but he says that words cannot convey a lot of emotions that the human body and the human face can express and he talks about how uh, using specific things like the close-up which only cinema could do at the time as opposed to a play you could go to a cinema and when you see the close-up you really see someone's facial expressions and what they're doing with their body and he sort of advocates as you know cinema is going to change the world because uh, we can overcome barriers of language which are presented through something like literature but uh, film is sort of uh, reacquainting human beings with the forgotten language of our bodies and that came out in 1924 so it's, and it's very very interesting uh, to think about the fact that Hitchcock was was drawing quite evisively as far as we can make out on all the kinds of films that were being made that you could go and see but in the era of silent cinema yes. and was making silent films at this point perhaps not ideal material for a podcast it has no. to be said <laughs> no. that we picked two silent films no. of course another thing that's interesting about Pleasure Garden is the fact that the, the nice dad in it has got radio so radio is becoming a an influential yes. force in culture yes. but also just a thing in people's living rooms yes. people are starting to get wirelesses yeah and also, again, because we just talked about is, is radio as something, an instrument that theoretical, theoretically can connect you to other parts of the world and listen to voices from other parts of the world. So it's quite interesting that this discourse about cinema, uh, films being sort of the next frontier uh, as something that can connect humanity, but it's interesting how the radio also figures into that conversation in this period in the early 1920s well so much later on French radio uh, repackaged Francois Truffaut's tapes of his interviews with Alfred Hitchcock someone has very thoughtfully placed all of the French radio series on YouTube with English translations <laughs> so a sort of companion piece to Rated H for Hitchcock is that you can watch Hitchcock and Truffaut talking about all of his Every films. Every one of his films, yes. apart from The Pleasure Garden, which yes, he of course. doesn't talk about. Um, but you, you'll be able to watch him discussing these films in detail, which is another reason why I'm kind of not doing this as, as like reading things off a Wikipedia page, because yeah. if you're that interested in what Hitchcock thought about Hitchcock's films, Francois Truffaut already made a really good French radio series yes. about this that you can watch uh, with English translations. Yes, and we're not competing with uh, Truffaut. But what could you be looking at then in 1920? What were you looking at that attracted you? Oh, uh, all kinds of films. I even remember the French uh, uh, Max Lander. Max Lander. Those those attracted you very much. Oh yes, yeah, sure. The intolerance and. Uh, Birth of a Nation. Il y avait des films plus plus intimistes que ça. Le Intimate pictures in that the poor love. À travers l'orage. Through the storm. Orphans of the storm. Orphans of the storm. That was the French Revolution story. C'était la révolution, une histoire de la révolution française. Ah non, la révolution française c'était les deux orphelines. No, that was the two orphans. Yeah. So there he's talking about various different 
films he was watching in the early 1920s when they're silent films and so in a sense nation could speak unto nation and and not only was he making movies in Europe uh, particularly in Germany the sad part about uh, early 20s in India though is this we just don't know enough because a lot of the Indian films from that period haven't survived uh, there wasn't really an organised Indian film industry at that point it was individual financiers taking punts on directors uh, such as Falke for example but there was he was trained in Germany yes, of course that's right. as yeah. Hitchcock was in yes. a sense yeah. so there was never really a sense of it being a um, an organised film industry it was very much a cinema was you know very much so quite new and untested and quite ad hoc um, yeah but I, I, you know how could it not have had an influence I'm sure it did he called me naughty Lola the wisest girl on earth at home my pianola it's kind of a flapper film about um, good time girls who yes. fall for the wrong men basically yes but it's interesting that the film doesn't demonise showgirls or the show business because um, yes one of the women in it who's a showgirl is you know shown to be quite greedy and a bit of a gold digger but also the lead female protagonist she's also a showgirl and there's never really I mean you know of course there are allusions to um, the entertainment business attracting people who are maybe you know not as scrupulous but it doesn't um, sort of do a sort of theatre bad, flapper girls bad um, I think it just sort of takes that as a setting and explores different sort of character shades which is quite subtle for a film of that period I, I wonder if that's a sort of European approach to, mm. to flappers because yes. there's a thing certainly in English culture at this time more popular newspapers such as those owned by Lord Beaverbrook are quite happy with flappers and good time girls and a sort of evil in war uh, bright young things but they prefer their debutantes to end up addicted to morphine and, mm. and dying in penury in garrets yes. in Fitzrovia somewhere or impaled on railings or something I mean they're, 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 you know, they've, they've, always, they've always got it's fine for them to enjoy the yes. sins of the flesh as long as at the end she has to topple out of the back alley abortion with a alcohol bottle in her hand topple all the way backwards and then fall into some expensive furs uh, and then get impelled onto a railing I mean, come on, get your, you know, get your facts straight, that's what happens to women in my time So maybe when we, we look at this uh, film now it's interesting to think about how for a director who ended up but good reason with a pretty bad reputation for how he treated his leading ladies on set. Yep. It's interesting that in this film, uh, the two showgirls are gouty like their sarsaparilla with a bit more sass, shall we say. But to not spoil it, uh, things don't end that badly for them, no. necessarily. I mean, perhaps we're saying Hitchcock could have kind of looked at his earlier films more favourably perhaps in later life in terms of how he depicted his female protagonists. 
backwards. Shall we watch the um, bit in the film where the lead female character, the showgirl, has gotten married to a gentleman she doesn't know that well? They've gotten married in Italy and now he's off to do his job. His business in his Salon business or something like Ceylon. that, yes. But he's told her, presumably, he's lied to her saying, uh, I can't take my wife with me. So his wife, she's now waving him off, waving him goodbye as he, uh, as the ship is leaving. So one showgirl, Virginia Valby's character, has shacked up with um, a stage door Johnny who's quite well healed. Well, seemingly well seemingly healed. Seemingly well healed. No, spoilers. Oops. Uh, so this, is, this uh, plot has very much shifted to her friend who's the dark-haired one, played by Carmelita Garaguti. The husband's a sort of, rather sort of limp fish. He's a sort of not terribly attractive, emaciated man. Creepy. With a sort of creepy toothbrush moustache. Yes. Sports jacket. Yes. Is there a, has there been a plaque, a cheese cutter cap? Yes, I think so. I think so. there's been a jaunty yes. cap uh, as yes, well. I think yes, so. of course. So he's, so he's now, he's set sail and she's waving him goodbye. Just a, an interesting segue from yes. uh, the female protagonist waving to, well, who's this dusky maiden dusky, waving? dark-haired, exotic, with a untamed. Of, this um, some flowers as a as a as a bracelet. Bracelet. Yes. That never ends well, does it? So she's some sort of um, island. Dweller. Island girl, yes. So this raises the interesting question of where is this um, somewhat disreputable gentleman's uh, business uh, in the colonies? And the answer seems to be it's every country. Yes. The location is the uh, is called Foreign. It's set in Foreign. So he's got a pith helmet on and they're in the souk or the market somewhere and there seem to be people wearing turbans and ponchos yashmaks and, and I think I even saw some uh, cowboy boots there at one point so perhaps they're in Yosemite but uh, we've moved quickly to this is a tea plantation somewhere yes. isn't it yes. and a raffia roofed hut uh, I think we're led to believe he's working in a tea plantation yes and he's clearly um, setting up home with this island girl despite being a newly married man so here's when we are uh, the film confirms for us that he, uh, he's not a good chap absolute bounder um, he's also a controlling creep oh okay yeah there's a bit of a oh there's a there's a steamy kiss so can you talk to us in an entertaining and informative way about the phenomena in cinema during this period, the late 1920s, of uh, the telephone girl as a sort of cultural icon, uh, women getting employment, particularly in telephone exchanges, but how that relates to uh, the sort of rise of the female cinema goer. Because I detect that this film is made for, yes. for ladies. It's very sympathetic to the woman's point of view. Isn't that interesting, given yes. that Hitchcock had a terrible reputation uh, yes yes um, 
Well, I mean, this was a period in, I can most authoritatively speak about India, but this was very much a global phenomenon that in the 1920s, generally we had more women uh, gaining high education, moving out of their homes, living in a city independently, seeking employment uh, and being employed as telephone girls or secretaries or typists um, these women were also single in the city and now they had some money and now they had some time to themselves as well and this was a period when Hollywood especially sought the um, female cinema goer there are two amazing sequences in the Busby Berkeley film starring Dick Powell who I've become uh, increasingly obsessed with as the months have gone on this year. Uh, that, that's probably another podcast, my interest in Dick Powell. Uh, but Dames, the Busby Berkeley musical in which he stars, has got that amazing uh, sequence of I Only Have Eyes For You. But that demonstrates not only the way in which uh, the woman that a guy would sort of idolise and have a kind of amazing dream sequence of all the women in this dance sequence are all one lady which they do by having people wearing masks but also uh, because that when before it goes into that sequence uh, it's a couple fall asleep on the New York subway and then he has this dream about this sort of Busby Berkeley musical one of the things which leads into the dream sequence is he's looking at the adverts on the, in the subway car and seeing like an advert for perfume yes an advert for hats. Yes. And he's seeing this girl everywhere. He's seeing her in the perfume yes. ad. He's seeing her in the hat advert. And then at the end of Dames, the Dames actually show up. <laughs> so he's in an office, and then all these Bub Busby Berkeley lovelies turn up and get their, you know, one second close up. But they're all handing him their business card because, you know, it's the 1920s. So women mean business. Yes. And Dick Powell's got this kind of real kind of like kind of crazy like almost shit-eating grin of just like d so many dames i don't know what to do with all these telephone girls coming to me and giving me their foot their card he's loving it yes it's it was a whole world not just of newfound materials uh, consumables that were seeking out women this you know consumers but it was also just a whole world of experiences that you could you know buy a magazine you could see um you know a hairstyle you liked so you could go get the same hairstyle you could get the perfume you could get the shoes you could get the clothes and you could sort of get them just for yourself because you had money and the time to do it so it's interesting in this film, the, the the Pleasure Garden, that Alfred Hitchcock is a work for hire. Yes, he's a journeyman filmmaker, and he's been brought in to make this. Can we say it's Telephone Girls film? I mean, it's a it's a film yeah, aimed a at a yeah. female audience. Yes, and the two protagonists are women, and this very unflattering depiction of this absolute cad. I mean, this man's an absolute shark. Yeah, what's he up to at the moment? Um, so he's just you know shacking up in his island, not writing to his wife. So she's back home now. She's back home. And There's her nice parents. Oh, what's she done? Oh, oh, I think she's received a letter. She's she's finally received a letter from her ne'er-do-well husband. So he's bothered to write to her. So the letter says, I am sorry 
I have not written before for many weeks. I have been down with fever, which is a lie. This is an unhealthy... Heart? Unhealthy spot. This is an unhealthy spot and uh, not very suitable for Europeans. So he's basically making an excuse for why she can't visit him and why he hasn't written and he's just lying that he's ill. So although women are a force to be reckoned with as consumers in the late 1920s and Hitchcock's making a film which seems at least in part to be aimed at women in the audience it's also reflecting the fact that an option for women was not getting on a packet steamer and running a tea plantation in Ceylon. Yes. But it's interesting that the, the, the film sort of also implying that um, marriage isn't all that it's made to be, ladies. Because, you know, it's an era where I'm, I presume women were not getting married very late into their lives, but, you know, they were they had a period where they had jobs and they could live independently and singly. And it's sort of saying that, uh, you know, she, you know, she did the right thing that society wanted her to do, found a husband, settled down, and uh, she's still having to work very hard, and her husband is cheating on her. So it's interesting that it's not a very flattering view of, you know, ladies, get married, get settled. It's sort of pushing back against that. Yeah, it's quite bit. a sort of socially realistic film. Yes, so she's decided that her her absent husband is ill and she must go to this... Uh, uh, unnamed foreign location. ...to attend to him because he's sick. So she's gone to see her friend, played by Virginia Valby, who's le leading a much more uh, well-heeled existence. So she's got this very nice apartment with very nice cloths yes, in it. Yes, because she is getting married to a, a prince. prince. Nice. she just refuses to help her friend which again sort of you know but it's interesting I think this is the last time we hear about her the yeah, well-heeled yeah. friend married to the yeah, prince yeah I think she yeah I was expecting that you know at the end of the film the prince would have discarded her and you know she would have gotten her comeuppance uh, but the film doesn't really show us what happens to her um, I'm wondering whether this was a budget decision or well you don't really need to doom flappers when one will do <laughs> yes I mean, that's a sort of general principle yes I want to make the cinema. make a film two doomed flappers there's a MacGuffin involving an engagement ring which can be hawked so she can get on a oh there we go get on a boat and go to the husband so the nice parents have sold their belongings so she can uh, get on a ship and get to said unnamed foreign mop, mop island. this ghastly man's fevered brow. So she's now on the deck of a steamer. Fade. Now she's in the uh, she's generic the marketplace. She's got to the hut. He's stretched out with this um, native lady tending, tending to him. In a compromising position, let's just... Well, certainly as compromising as uh, audiences and yes. film censors would allow in yes. 1928. Um, he's clearly not down with a fever. He's working up a sweat, but it's not on account of mal de mer. <laughs> Look at the... Look, he's not combed his hair. 
dear lord. Yeah, it's scruffy bastard, and he's not wearing shoes. No, I'm finding it a bit hard to believe that this man could attract not one but two young women. Well, of course, the great advantage for rascals and cads of this caliber at this time (laughs) was, of course, um, the the huge number of men who died in the Great War. Slim pickings. Men who were um, uh, cowards, or in many cases conscientious objectors, which is. far more morally defensible position at any rate or in his case not of the commensurate quality of fighting men which the armed forces would require at any time really how can we describe him he's sort of like a giraffe with colic I can believe that he survived malaria and he's very drunk he's very drunk and now he is threatening um, the island girl dearie me to be fair to Carmelita's character she has turned up in salon we assume yes dressed appropriately for golf she's got a very nice <laughs> jumper on and uh, very nice gloves and is that a cloche hat she's wearing too many clothes uh, whereas island girl is again i mean you know this is this is to reinforce uh the two different worlds that this man is simultaneously trying to take advantage of basically so, you know, the poor, naive wife who's turned up on the island, you know, looking very much like the outsider, and his, uh, this drunk man is now uh, intimidating and physically assaulting this uh, island girl. Because well, it's he's very, very unpleasant, but also quite sort of taut, and I think quite uncompromising for a film of this period. Yes. But not uncompromising for... Hitchcock so I'm not shocked to see what is effectively Hitchcock's first film where he's the sole director involve a quite quite realistic depiction of violence towards a woman because that's kind of his calling card really isn't it it's very unsafe but was that shocking to audiences in 1928 that's an interesting question isn't it I mean that's shocking to me yeah, are we looking at it now and we're sort of looking at his whole oeuvre and the fact that this very unsettling aspect of his cinema is present from the very start, are we sort of telescoping that with our yes. knowledge about yes. his whole... It's part of the problem of looking at the whole body of work of yes. a great film director is you're looking at the whole body. Yes. You're not looking at each individual. Yes. And perhaps we're not then... Yeah, you're seeing. We might we might be seeing patterns that don't exist, and ignoring things which may also be yes. there. Like for example, for a film where even in making it, they would have been mindful of the fact that the audience was predominantly probably women, because that was one of the trends in in filmmaking and, and certainly cinema audiences at the time. Um, actually, although he's not pulling any punches about how this bloke's mistreating this. Um, woman in the colonies it's not showing his actions as in any way admirable no. or imitable no how do you feel about it it's quite shocking it's mm. quite shocking and yeah it's very uncompromising character study not meant to feel any sympathy for this man and it's as someone you know from a former colony it's it's hard to not look at this and go Bloody hell! That's a that's an uncompromising depiction of 
well, colonialism. Maybe. So, it, but and also this just this connects this film to the next film, which is it. This film, The Pleasure Garden, is also about the plight of women yes. and the way that women are constrained, confined, limited in their expectations of life. In this yes. case, commonly to Gary character. Yes, she's a showgirl, but she seems to be quite a moral person. She's from a good family. We Hard see working. her parents. They're yeah. very nice. Um, she's not like her floozy friend who's no. lying around looking at different expanses of cloth and, and marrying a prince, we're told. Yeah, one of the interesting things that I found about uh, the film is that uh, they get married and she continues to work. Mm. I expected that after they get married in Italy, uh, Carmelita's character would just stop working. She's uh, still shown to be a, a, a working woman. Should we not uh, give away what happens to this rascal yes. to our audience? Although I think yes. they can probably guess. Yes, and it's only an hour and nine hour minutes. And nine, yeah. um, Very interesting. And there are things at the start of The Pleasure Garden, which if listeners go and watch it uh, and you can find these commentaries online as well but you can see many things that Hitchcock then later mm. reuses in his first movie so yes. for example you've got people in the audience watching the showgirls on the stage through that's right. those little opera glasses and that's like rear window yes and so on and so yes. forth it's also a very well-paced film, I thought. There's not a lot of guff. It's a speedy hour and nine minutes, so we would recommend. Yeah, and but um, you see, what I thought we'd end up sitting talking about would be his camera angles and his directing technique. But it's interesting that we've ended up talking about really the core of the film, which yeah. is um, it's how women get treated. Yeah. And it's not what you expect for Hitchcock's first no. film, really, is it? no. And that might partly be down to the fact that he didn't make the choice in terms of the material. You know, he was basically brought in as a jobbing director, but he doesn't do a bad job. No. In a moment, we're going to talk about a much less problematic film directed by a woman, Shemaine Dulac. But before that, I like in these shows where we kind of go back to the past before most of our listeners will remember... I think it's nice just to kind of listen to what what was in the in the pop charts. What were people listening to at the time? Because I like a bit of pop music, and I like to think about what was what was was uh, top of the pops in this case in 1928. Would you like to hear a hit from 1928? Yes, I would. Well, uh, we're going to listen to a popular record by an artist who very often, when you see a sort of drawing room with various uh, aristocrats smoking cigarettes in bitch sticks you know cigarette holders yes very often uh this gentleman's records are playing and he's become sort of i think synonymous with that kind of rather sort of loose but well-heeled 1920s uh whispering jack smith i'll kiss your little hand madame and don't dream about your lips you see i'm so gallant madame on such a night as this And may I have your heart, madame With all its sympathy 
If you will keep your tryst with me, how happy I will be. And then I'll kiss your lips, madam, and hold your little hand. Madam, ich liebe Sie, seit vielen Wochen. Wir haben manchmal auch davon gesprochen. Was nutzt es alles, mein Pech dabei ist, dass auch Ihr Hätchen leider nicht mehr frei ist. Delightful. It's quite soothing. Yes. So his lovely, soothing, sort of tenor baritone voice was very much his calling card. He started off as a kind of record plugger. So he started off within the industry but became a recording artist in his own right. There was a story, but it's one of those stories that you kind of think probably was put about by the record company because it was good publicity. So it's probably not true. But it's interesting that. The, at least the press release that must have done the rounds attributed his very distinctive delivery to the fact that he'd been gassed on the Western mm. Front as an American soldier. And I mention that because this is a period between the wars when a young film director like Alfred Hitchcock could go to Germany and work in the German film industry. Yes. An American recording artist like Jack Smith could go to Germany and record records for a German audience. Yes, an Indian film director could travel to Germany to learn how the camera works. And I particularly picked uh, that track because, of course, it's got that lovely bit where he's talking in German. Yes. And very beautiful it is too. He was also known for a couple of other hits, and he's probably also known for his version of Crazy Rhythm. Praise rhythm is the doorway. I'll go my way, you'll go your way. Praise rhythm, from now on we're through. Here's where we have a showdown. I'm too high hat, you're too low down. Praise rhythm, here's goodbye to you. They say that when a high brow meets old brow, walking along Broadway, soon the high brow, he has no brow, ain't it a shame, and you're to blame. What's the use of prohibition? You produce the same condition. Crazy rhythm, I've gone crazy too. Probably better known for the version recorded by Roger Wolf Kahn and his orchestra that you can hear now. Interesting lyrics to Crazy Rhythm since it was recorded eight, nine years into the prohibition period in America. They say that when a highbrow meets a lowbrow walking down Broadway, soon the highbrow, he has no brow. Ain't it a shame? And you're to blame. What's the use of prohibition? You produce the same condition. Crazy rhythm, I've gone crazy too. But that's when prohibition was the law. So it's sort of implicitly <clears throat> pointing out the... Uh, the Futility of prohibiting alcohol has proved to be the case. So I think the the kind of combination of a sort of intimate frankness and one might say political frankness about some of his lyrics and some about some of his recordings is combined with this sort of lovely, calming, quite sort of almost parental delivery. He also reminds me of you know that little Jack Little track I really like, Waltz in Berlin. I always 
always wanted to waltz in Berlin. Waltz in Berlin. Waltz in Berlin. The way things look, we'll be waltzing right in. Right into Germany. It's a combination of something which is cheeky and a bit threatening. Just a little bit. But also just very calm you know, in jest and decent. And yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we call it meaty churi in <laughs> Hindi. It means sweet knife. <laughs> you know, it's sweet, but it's a knife, but sweet. <laughs> I wonder how many of you folks today would like to be my partner waltzing down the streets of Berlin. What can we say about Shemaine Delac, a filmmaker who is appreciated now and I think uh, quite well known in your field, which is film scholarship, particularly scholarship of women directors, but not particularly well known by cinephiles generally, which, at least for me, I think it be, can be partly explained by the story about the screening of her 1928 film, The Seashell and the Clergyman, which was a, an early surrealist film, made five years after the film we're going to talk about now. So this was a surrealist film that was screened for the surrealist group at Studio de Esseline, which was a legendary art house cinema in Paris's fifth arrondissement. Many important art films have first been screened there, and it's still there. Uh, Breton apparently was there. Um, Artois was there. Obviously, these things are often uh, the subjects of a lot of folklore. Yes. Often get dressed up by a lot of mythology. But um, Artois is supposed to call her a cow. Um, Gerard was a. I think she's still married at the time, but she was uh, lesbian. After her marriage ended, she was in a lifelong yes. relationship uh, with her partner, um, and she was a crossdresser as well. So yes. she would wear men's clothes even when she was married we can speculate why her surrealist film may not have been particularly well received by the surrealist collective but the reception that Gilak's film got from this group is in marked contrast to the screening of Bunuel and Salvador Dali's um, celebrated surrealist film and Chien Andalou several years later where Dali famously wanted there to be some kind of riot and Picasso and Breton and various people turned up and, according to Boonwell, much to Dali's disappointment, they loved it. Just to kind of frame this film with a bit of biography, Germaine Gillac actually seems to have had quite a happy life, relatively speaking. She didn't end up with any particular profile as an artist filmmaker in the 20s, but her skill as an editor meant that she carried on working as an editor for Pathé and also for Movie Tone. And she died in 1942, so she was working... Actually, you know, even during the German occupation, during the war, she still had a film career. It's just her film career was mainly as a as an editor. The actor in this film, uh, Germaine Dumont, also very interesting how she had very long f film career. She made over 60 films. Her last film, made in 1963, 
uh, was the reluctant spy, the on, uh, also called the Honourable Stanislav Secret Agent. So Germaine Dumont had a, a very long and successful career, and um, this film is but one of a number of very interesting incidents in a very, very rich career. Um, I would also highly recommend uh, Tammy Williams's book uh, called Germaine Dulac, A Cinema of Sensations, and Tammy's book has been quite instrumental in sort of reviving interest in Dulac. Uh, she came to St Andrews for a talk four years ago, which is the first time I ever heard of Germaine Dulac. And just from the clips that she screened from the smiling uh, Mrs Bidet, it was just phenomenal that these ideas were present in a film from the early 20s. And it's for rightfully regarded as one of the earliest feminist films ever made. Because in a similar way to The Pleasure Garden, it's about the confinement of a woman. Yes. The sort of plight of women that they find themselves in, in both cases, in, in an unhappy marriage. I mean, in the case yes. of the, the Hitchcock film, she doesn't realise it's an unhappy marriage until too late and some way into the film but it's similar similar sort of thematic area yeah so what I find just staggeringly important about Dulac's film is that the uh, depiction of the woman's unhappiness and uh, it's, it's subtle treatment of control um, and abuse within a relationship so her husband doesn't mistreat her in the conventional sense of beating her or, or sh you know, um, physically assaulting her in any way. Um, it's in I find it very interesting that the film doesn't feel like it has to show physical control. The film is called Smiling Mrs. Bidet and you never see her smile in the film. Okay, let's watch a bit. Which bit should we watch? One of the one of her imagination scenes where he's sort of doing the jeering thing. So there's a lot of stuff in this. What sure he's doing, which is great radio, is <laughs> sorry, is um, putting a gun, two finger gun to her head. So there's a thing in this film about it's a him, repetitive gag. Him mimicking blowing his brains out and her not being very happy with him and him putting a gun in a drawer. Should we just say that? Yeah, let's just keep it at that. Um, but what's interesting about that, in terms of comparing a Hitchcock with this Shemaine Dulac film, is that as a MacGuffin, as a plot device, actually the gun in the drawer in this movie is more effective than anything in The Pleasure Garden. Although The Pleasure Garden has elements of being a thriller and the violence in it in particular is quite quite harrowing it's quite an upsetting film in some ways for a silent film it's not really a murder mystery it's not it's a melodrama it's about emotions much more than it's about the action whereas this film is interesting because it's got a structure like a thriller in some ways yes so as is often the case with the doing a podcast about silent films we have to sort of describe what we're seeing and then there's this music that goes with it 
but obviously that wasn't the music that they heard in the cinema because that was a, a, a live piano player so she's looking at a tennis player in a magazine and she's looking in a rather unhappy way at her husband who is it safe to say he's not a fit man no he's having a temper tantrum so now she's imagining the tennis player and he's quite a he's rather a girthy man but quite not not unattractive and in a sort of out of focus shot he's moving through space and now his sort of apparition a ghost but it's a ghost of her imagination is now approaching her actual husband with his tennis bat but he's raising it and now he's now he's pulled the husband's soul out of his body what's going on surety and this is one of the moments where she does laugh she's laughing out loud about um, this surreal thing that she's imagining so he's now parodying suicide by taking a gun out of a drawer and pointing at his head oh dear lord and laughing in a rather menacing way she's she's had enough she's just had enough something that's interesting about this film this is this is a bit of a kind of tangent or a sidebar but the fact that cinema at this time isn't as sort of manicured and controlled that wisps of hair which are sort of beautifully haloed and lit are just askew yes I mean the cinema of the 1920s is still a world of, of unkempt sideburns yes. and uh, unironed lapels I mean look at how what's his eyebrow doing it's a rogue eyebrow Yes, we've basically got a cavalcade of unkempt lapels, shirt fronts. Now there's a gentleman talking into one of those kind of old stick phones with... Yeah, it's two men, you know, speaking to each other and then it's cutting to sort of um, a shirt collar and sleeves on a table and I suspect it's, it's some kind of commentary on just... Um, masculinity yeah. by the looks of it well so they're, they're preparing to go out to the theatre aren't they yeah so they want to go to um, to watch Faust and she just simply doesn't want to go and her husband is very exasperated at her that she doesn't want to go um, and the sense very much is that she the, the wife she Mrs Viday just simply cannot stand uh, her husband's company and finds him quite vulgar and well, not attractive but it's interesting that it's very interesting to see a film trying to sort of depict you know, ennui it's, it's not merely unhappiness it's something else um, and it's very interesting again that it's you know, you you see a woman experiencing those emotions, and one of the ways in which we the film hints at uh, how uh, her husband stifles her is um, uh, she likes to play the piano, and uh, her husband 
upon leaving the house uh, locks the piano and takes the key with him so it's one of absolute charmer so he he can't even allow her that one thing which I think is a very very subtle way of depicting the state of their relationship so it's not you know uh, it's more subtle than the pleasure garden in that sense because you don't see the husband you know going off to an island and you know drunk and engaging in debauchery or cheating on her it's interesting how the, the film basically depicts a dysfunctional relationship the man's friend or assistant was going through some carpet samples then lovely clock very nice clock something both these films have got in common is they're both about theatre as a kind of forum for people's imagination and their imagined idealised lives so she's imagining that if she could go to see this production of Faust with her husband and his two friends then you know she'd get out of the house and her imagination is about going out and doing something cultural whereas he's just this sort of rather petty being an irritating man who's sitting there having ideations about shooting himself in the head and he's, he's basically just a grotesque isn't he yeah when it comes down to it whereas in the pleasure garden we only really see the theatre at the start of the film we see their performance on the stage and they are the object of the uh, let's be blunt imagined lusting of the male audience I I have a slightly different take on this scene than you do actually I think that uh, she in fact wants to stay at home because she would rather just spend time with her own imagination oh I see yeah whereas he is pretending to be some kind of intellectual because he wants to go see Faust and he's sort of mocking her my wife can't even be asked to go to the play with me um, so it's sort of mocking him because he's sort of has this ideation that just because he goes to watch Faust that he's sort of some sort of uh, intellectual uh, and his wife isn't and his wife is a bull I mean this, so this film was not aimed at telephone girls no this is no an artist making a piece of art which happens to be a film and would be regarded by other filmmakers and her contemporaries as being equivalent to staging Ibsen yes. or equivalent to an afternoon recital of uh, you know a piece of uh, atonal music but it is interesting that this film is about this woman's attitude towards high culture although you're making a very interesting point is she actually just not that into it I think she I, I think it's unclear I yeah. think I think she doesn't want to go because she doesn't want to spend time with her husband that she would rather stay at home and um, be um, alone with her own thoughts yeah it makes me wish we could uh, ask Jermaine Gillette now what she thought about yes. the surrealists um reacting to her treating story. treating her rather uncouthly yeah. because it's entirely possible that her reaction to that was 
well sod you then yeah. and in fact I feel like this the surrealist aspect of this film is the fact that it's talking about women's feelings in this way in the early 1920s again it's not uh, I mean I know I'm repeating this quite often but I find it absolutely mind-blowing that the film how the film is depicting her unhappiness yes well it's certainly doing what what the surrealists said they were doing which was it's trying to sort of depict um, people's imagined life people's emotional life without authorship yes so that's an interesting aspect of the of Jalak's direction in that by the device of having dream sequences or sequences of imagination that actually is a, a yeah. you know legitimate sort of surrealist yeah but also just having trope just having the imaginative space yeah especially a woman having the imaginative space because again she is uh, you know she's very unhappy but it's interesting that in so this here, here we've got is this a this is her uh, domestic help and is she imagining a man kissing her, or is the man kissing her a memory of? Uh, she's imagining. Oh. So the domestic servant has come to ask her whether she could take the evening off to go out with her fiance, and then Mrs. Bidet imagines this woman's imaginary well, fiance kissing her. So it's sort of you know, she's sort of longing for a happier domesticity, because her own domestic life is just sort of basically strangling the life out of her. And again, the the fact that this woman is unhappy, she's not unhappy because she's poor or she isn't married or she isn't in a financially secure position. She has all the material needs that should make, te theoretically, a woman in the 1920s. What more do you want? You have a husband, you have money, you have, you know, a domestic uh, servant. This film's only made five years before Hitchcock's The Pleasure Garden. What is it that makes this an art film more sort of overtly or more clearly? Whereas Hitchcock's film seems more like what we think of as a Hollywood or mainstream film. Is it the fact that when it when Hitchcock's film depicts a market in a in a sort of colonial setting, the extras are obviously white people in funny outfits, and the the native woman obviously is a is she a uh, is she a European actor? She, she looks like. But, a but something about it looks a bit sort of fake yeah. somehow. There's a sort of element of fakery and staginess, which this Jermaine Delac film is lacking because of things like the lighting. I mean, everything yeah. is just very beautifully lit, like a like a sort of turn of the century photograph. Do you think this film's hammy? Do you Absolutely think it's overacted? Not. No, I don't think so. I don't all. think so either. But no. ev everything about it lends itself to a kind of stagey emotionality. Yeah. All of this can be done in a way where it doesn't really convey very much nuance. It's actually just a bit cheesy, really. Yes. But she doesn't. She doesn't do that. What, how is it she's avoiding cliches? I, I think the, the the fact by the fact that it's a film about a woman's feelings at that time I mean this this isn't like anything you would see from that period it's so different that I don't see how it could have been a cliche to be honest 
But it's remarkable how few films there are still about women's interior lives and women's imagination. It's one of the reasons why uh, Maya Darren's films are very important because there just are very few films about women daydreaming and making up stuff in their head. You just don't see it very often. In the 20s, Hitchcock could have made this film. I don't think it's that Shemaine Gillette made a, a very interesting film about a woman's interior life because she was a woman. I think it's because she's a very good filmmaker. Yes. I, I think a, yes. a filmmaker at this time when all the the sort of the language of films and the and the rules of filmmaking were not as overgrown with cliches and tricks and tropes that we now are used to. Many of them from Alfred Hitchcock, of course. When this this sort of international language of cinema is being given voice the first time, I think any filmmaker who has a sensitivity about how you put shots together could have made a film this good. We're at the point now where you're watching a really good silent film where you kind of have nothing else left to say and you just want to watch it. So, <laughs> yes. I mean, obviously we're talking about these movies because we think they're good movies and we hope people watch them. But I do hope people give uh, the Shemaine Delac film a look and look at her other films because yes. she's a very, very interesting filmmaker. Trotty, thank you so much for joining me in this discussion and thank you so much for also, I hadn't seen this and... Uh, I should have done and I'm a little bit ashamed that I wasn't familiar with her work before we made this show and I'm very happy that I am now and I thank you for that uh, I didn't even have to move outside of my own bedroom to do this so and do you want the good news? yes we've got months ahead of this <laughs> we're going to be locked down because of the mismanagement of the COVID-19 pandemic for at least the next six months Our podcast is More Music for Films and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice.